0: Hey Mission Hills! In case you didn't know already, this is not Ryan. This is Aaron Van Voorhis from Central Avenue Church in Glendale. I think a lot of you know me. Uh, But anyway, I'll be speaking this Sunday at your church, and Ryan will be speaking at mine. Pretty cool, right? Kind of a a pastor swap program. (laughs) This being almost Advent, I thought I'd speak today on a text from the Gospels having to do with Jesus' nativity, it's Christmas season, right? But that's not saying much, right? It's uh, It's been Christmas season according to the stores since Labor Day, <laughs> but it's November. So it's officially Christmas season now, so we can talk about the Nativity. And the text I want to look at is kind of an unlikely one. It's the story of Jesus' genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And I won't read the whole thing because it's kind of tedious and boring. So I'll just give you a little taste here. It begins... An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah, and Zerah by Tamar, end quote. It goes on from there and lists about 50 names, starting with Abraham and ending with Jesus. And to be clear, obviously, It's ahistorical and legendary, but that's okay, because it's really here for symbolic reasons anyway. It's here to establish Jesus' identity as the culmination of Israel's identity. It's to say that he is the true spiritual descendant of the patriarchs, like Abraham, Moses, and David. And he is therefore the rightful heir of the promises that God made to Israel. This genealogy is here to convince the original Jewish audience of the of Matthew's gospel that Jesus was someone to pay attention to and, and revere because he traces his line back to the patriarchs and yet his genealogy is disrupted by the intrusion of five women and five women only and I say disrupted because that's how their presence would have been perceived back then by the original audience this of course was a deeply patriarchal society uh, you know and Jesus's genealogy includes, Five very interesting women, and they are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And I want to focus today on these five mothers of Jesus and why they're so important as to be mentioned here. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. It came to pass that Judah's son, uh, Tamar's husband, that he died. And as was the custom, Judah had her married off to one of his other sons so that so she would be taken care of and perhaps have children with him. But he died too, and so Tamar found herself childless and husbandless. Not a good situation for a woman in the ancient Near East. Now Judah had a third son he could have given Tamar to, but at this point Judah thought she was cursed, so he didn't want to give her to his last son and risk losing him too. But Tamar was clever, and so she devises a plan to get pregnant and to secure her future in Judah's line. She knows that Judah has a proclivity to hire prostitutes when he travels. And so when, he hears, well, I'm sorry, when she hears that he's traveling to a town called Timnath, she goes there ahead of him and disguises herself as a sex worker, presents herself to him, and wouldn't you know it, he picks her up, so to speak. Months later, Judah comes to discover that Tamar is pregnant. He still doesn't know it was her. Uh, He discovers she's pregnant, and he sentences her to death, sentences her to be burned alive, actually, because back then a pregnant, unwed woman was seen as guilty of grave sin. Judah has no idea at this point, again, that he is the father uh, or that Tamar tricked him into having sex with her. But when he discovers all this and uh, has... His own sin revealed, he suddenly has a change of heart, as one does in such situations, and he spares her life, and she gives birth to twin sons, one of which is Perez, the ancestor of King David, the ancestor of Jesus. Interesting, right? And you thought your family had problems. This is not the only sex worker or case of incest in Jesus' lineage, because Rahab is mentioned here in Matthew's genealogy too. According to the book of Joshua, Rahab was a Gentile sex worker who lived in the city of Jericho, uh, which was a prominent Canaanite city in what was then the promised land, the land that Israel believed God called them to conquer. So the Israelites sent two spies into the city of Jericho to gather intel In preparation for their attack, it was Rahab who hid the two spies in her brothel or hotel. We're not sure which it was. Uh, She believed that they were sent there by God, so she hid them. And she also helped them escape the city and avoid arrest. When the time came to sack the city, she and her family were spared. And despite the fact that they weren't Israelites, they were welcomed into the community. She would later become the father of Boaz, another one of Jesus' ancestors. Boaz, of course, became the husband of Ruth, who, like Rahab, was not an Israelite or a Jew herself originally. In Ruth's case, she was a Moabite, which was a cursed nation in the eyes of the Lord because of their beginnings. According to the book of Genesis, when Lot and his daughters escaped the burning city of Sodom and Gomorrah, They fled into some caves where Lot's daughters, afraid that they will never get married and have children, got their father blind drunk one night and had relations with him, and they became pregnant. The children from this incestuous union became the patriarchs of the nation of Moab. At least that's the legend of it and what the ancient Israelites uh, believed. And it's why there were laws forbidding Jews from intermarrying with the Moabites. And yet Ruth comes from this cursed nation and marries an Israelite man named Boaz and together they have Obed who was the grandfather of David who, which of course makes him of the line of Jesus as well. Interesting, right? I think it's interesting. And then there's Bathsheba who was the wife of Uriah the Hittite One of David's elite soldiers. David saw her bathing outside one day from one of his palace windows and was so smitten with her beauty that he decided to have her as his own. So, in order to get rid of her husband, he made sure that Uriah was put on the front lines in the next battle, where he would most certainly die, and of course he did. David then took Bathsheba as his wife, and Solomon was the result of this sinful union. Another one of Jesus' ancestors, we're told. And then finally, of course, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was an unmarried pregnant teenager, a scandal back then, to be sure. What do these stories all have in common? Well, these five women are here in Matthew's genealogy as a way of disrupting any notion of Israel's purity. These women are foreigners, idolaters, sex workers, and women of questionable purity. They represent Israel's failure according to their standards to be racially religiously and sexually pure and yet all these and yet these women are all not despite but because of this righteous and heroic figures they all in different ways ensure the continuation of Israel and its identity as the people of God Some would interpret their presence in Matthew's genealogy as a message that God can work through anyone, even the worst of us. God is that powerful and that wonderful that even the worst sinners among us, the adulterers, the incestuous, the sex workers, the worshipers of foreign gods, even they can be used for the glory of God. But that reading bothers me a lot because It demeans these five women. Such a reading actually depends upon demeaning them for the sake of glorifying God. They must be seen as trashy and dirty so that God might be seen as gracious and good. The more dirty and trashy they look, the better God looks for using them. So I don't like that reading. I don't like that interpretation. Instead, I interpret their presence here in Matthew as a message that God actually prefers and identifies more with the foreigners, the sex workers, the so-called ungodly and impure ones, rather than the so-called righteous, holy, and pure ones. Jesus preferred, we're told, the poor over the wealthy. He preferred the irreverent over the pious. He preferred the Samaritans over the Uh, The foreigners and the Gentiles over his own countrymen quite often were told the religious authorities condemned him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was condemned for being a friend of such questionable people. But Jesus didn't just pretend to prefer them, right? He didn't just pretend to prefer them to prove how gracious and good he was. Rather, he preferred them because he was one of them. As his genealogy shows us, Therefore, if we don't like those people, then we don't like Jesus. If we don't identify with the outcasts and the misfits, the so-called impure ones, then we don't identify with Christ, because Christ was one of them. So that's one way I interpret the presence of these five mothers of Jesus, these five women in Matthew's genealogy. The other way is how they represent religion's inability to define God or control God. This is the other way I interpret their presence. These women deconstruct, we would say, in today's parlance. These women deconstruct any notion that God has to play by certain rules or that God is somehow contained or revealed solely within a particular religion, a particular spiritual tradition or culture. Again, two of the five women, Rahab and Ruth, were not Jews or Israelites originally. One was a Moabite, the other a Canaanite. In this way, the God revealed in Jesus defied, the religious imagination of his day. He broke all their religious rules and theological presuppositions about who God was and how God worked. Such a God should be understood as utterly incomprehensible to the religious mind, to anyone who tries to domesticate, define, or contain God in a particular religion. The God revealed in Jesus' genealogy shows us that we must let go of any theological certainty, We must give up the quest for orthodoxy or the one right religion, because there is no such thing. There are only the messy and imperfect human ways that we engage in faith and spirituality. Therefore, we must embrace uncertainty, unknowing, imperfection, and complexity, and see this as a kind of faith, faith as a kind of courage to embrace difficult truths, make peace with such things, and believe that this life and this world is divine, not despite its complexities and imperfections and difficulties, but because of them. To do so is to recognize that we too are of the line of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. This isn't just Jesus's spiritual lineage, but our own. These aren't just Jesus's mothers, but there are mothers too. These are our spiritual mothers. Okay, that's my talk for today. I look forward to discussing this more with you in person. See you soon. i